Welcome to the Fed Tech Innovators Podcast, where we talk about all things deep tech innovation, entrepreneurship, and R&D. Now let's get started. All right. Well, welcome to the Fed Tech Innovator Podcast. I'm uh, Ben Solomon. I'm the founder and managing partner of Fed Tech. And we are really, really pleased to be with Mike Grace here today as the CEO of Longshot Space. Um, and we get to see a lot of cool companies at uh, FedTech, but man, oh man, this is, this is a cool company. This is one that our staff routinely talks about. Mike, I've heard about you, uh, many times, uh, ahead of this, all good things, but, uh, maybe just a quick intro, uh, tell, tell us kind of what you're working on. Um, and then just a little bit of also your personal uh, story, if you don't mind. Sure. No problem. Well, first off, thanks a lot for inviting us on. Um, so yeah, Mike Grace, I'm the CEO, um, my co-founder, Nato Sachek, CTO downstairs working on the thing. We're building a a, a novel hypersonic accelerator. This is a, a big tube that sits on the ground that shoots stuff out of it going really fast that is kind of loosely inspired by actually some super weapons dating back to like World War II. Um, and the, 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 the short-term goal of the company, the thing that we want to build would basically take kilo, like payloads of a few hundred kilograms up to mid to high hypersonic speeds. So you're talking like Mach 5 to Mach 15. And that would be useful. This is basically a giant potato gun for shooting stuff at hypersonic speeds. And that would be really I useful. that analogy. For, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the perfect analogy. It immediately gets across what we're building. <laughs> uh, because our system is actually totally pneumatic. It's, um, it's entirely driven by compressed air. Uh, that's a big feature because anybody who has ever attempted to fill out an environmental impact statement knows that the second you put... Uh, you bring hazmat materials out into somewhere, you you make building the thing a lot harder. So we've worked really hard to sort of from the ground up, conceptualize and define our system so that like it, it, it consumes electricity, it uses air as the fluid that does the pushing and it lets stuff go and that's it. So the near-term goal is to assist people who want to do technology development for hypersonic systems. That could be if people want to build thermal protection systems or guidance or propulsion or whatever, um, the, at some point in the development cycle of those systems, you have to actually fly them. They must actually show that they work in the actual atmosphere. And right now, the only way to do that is to buy pretty powerful rockets, uh, particularly if you're testing something that's like a full system, or a big thing. Um, you've got to put it on top of a rocket. Those rockets might cost tens of millions of dollars. Um, even if it's not going to space, they're kind of going to the edge of space. So, you know, and, you know, we're building a potato gun. We think we could achieve comparable velocities in the atmosphere for, you know, a hundred thousand bucks, something along those lines, and also do it a lot faster. And right now there's loads of anxiety with respect to China developing a lot of hypersonics capabilities. Um, you know, their cost of labor is about a tenth of ours. And they're able to build stuff really quickly and really uh, efficiently. And there's some anxiety about effectively losing a hypersonics arms race to them, which would kind of like potentially in one fell swoop uh, negate the advantage of the United States Navy. Um, so that's like a, a big anxiety inside of the Department of Defense. They want to get, it's not just that they want to build a better hypersonic system. They want to build a system for building better hypersonic systems. Um, and that's Real, what it's a huge, huge priority. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big priority. Uh, we just lucked out actually that that was sort of timing. The, the long term goal for Longshot 
is very focused on putting stuff into space. Like the, what we realized is that the thing that we would need to build, the potato gun we would need to build to put a satellite into space is, is huge. It's, it's physically massive. The company is called Longshot for a reason. Like this thing would be kilometers long, which is a feature in some ways. You want to get the maximum force of acceleration down. And you do that by basically making the accelerator longer. However, like try and convince somebody to give you money to go out and build like a multiple kilometer long, gigantic, never before built thing. It's really hard. So what we realized is that by going for hypersonic tests, we could build something that's, you know, an order of magnitude smaller and serve this like really pressing needs of DOD. Sure. And so right now, uh, as I'm sitting here speaking to you, we are downstairs banging away on a Mach 5 hypersonic prototype here in Oakland, which shoots a safe that we filled with concrete. It's awesome. Uh, okay. Yeah. Like I've seen some yeah videos of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, super fun times. And well, then like, one question, just, the, you know, I think the audience is going to be really interested. So we, can you describe a little bit the economics of sort of putting stuff in space, you know, sure. and just, um, you obviously see, you know, SpaceX and, and others getting oh, a lot yeah. of attention, but like what, where's, where's the, the potential cost saving that makes your technology so exciting? Yeah. So my, my I want to say with regards to SpaceX that in my opinion, they're the only company that matters in space. They're the only company that matters in space. Um, frankly, um, every, anybody who has a business plan by which they say I can potentially make billions of dollars in space must contend with the fact that if they do, Elon Musk is just going to compete with them. And I mean, right now, if you were a telecommunications operator looking down the barrel of Starlink and what that could become in the next five, 10 years, you should be shaking in your boots. Um, so space launch is both an incredible multiplier to the cost of doing anything in space. Any advantage you have in space launch means that if your space launch is cheaper, you can build your satellites to be cheaper and more expendable. They become cheaper. And it's this virtuous cycle. And the inverse is true. The more expensive launch is, the more expensive everything else becomes. What SpaceX is doing is super important and super impressive, and everybody should be pulling them for the future of humanity. Um, if I was competing with them, uh, and I was a rocket company, I would be terrified. The, the, the reason, the, I, I've, I've said this for a long time, and, and there's kind of a conventional wisdom out there that it's not a good idea to try and compete generally with SpaceX. I, I don't think that's true. Um, I do think that uh, there's a nuance there, which is that if you are trying to compete in space launch and you look like SpaceX did 10 years ago, like you're building some kind of equivalent to the Falcon 1, some small rocket, you've, you, you're, you've got a serious, serious problem on your hand. You, you can't compete with SpaceX, the company that they are today, by trying to replicate path to success that they executed on 15 years ago. What? And pull the thread, what, what's, what's different? Is it that the, the market dynamics have just changed so much or what's- It's that they exist. It's that they exist and that they're there and they have a head start. If SpaceX had existed 15 years ago, there's no way Elon Musk ever would have been able to start a rocket company, right? Like th there, there is an incredible physical advantage to a rocket just being bigger. Like physical size makes rockets more efficient. And so like, there was a small entry point where you could make an argument that you could build a small rocket and compete. And that was because the market broadly in like 
the you know 1990s and 2000s was so bad. Um, that's gone. That is totally gone. And I think that a lot of launch companies out there, like um, I'm going to make some, I'm not going to make friends saying this, but I think that companies like Astra, companies like Rocket Lab, um, you know, it, to the degree that those companies survive, it will be because there are customers like the Department of Defense or people inside of the EU who want there to be a diversity of commercial options. And so they will effectively subsidize those. But in terms of pure cost component, like if you're just talking about what's going to be the king of the rockets for the next whoever knows how long, it's clearly SpaceX. It's clearly SpaceX. I believe they're going to get their super heavy to work. I think that it's going to knock everything out of the park. It's going to be great. Now, the reason why I think there is a caveat on all of is that rockets are fundamentally really, really hard. Um, and I think that they are not actually the best way of putting stuff into space. Like flat out, I don't think they're very good at it. Um, the most efficient rocket ever in the world flown to date, I think that the Saturn V actually still retains the mantle. It might be SLS. Really? Okay. But it was simply because it was the biggest rocket that had ever been flown up to that point. Um, and uh, it had delivered about one and a half percent of its total mass to space. So you build the skyscraper. And, you know, you get something the size of like a couple of school buses into space. That's, that's it. Um, fundamentally, if the thing that does all the work, like the rocket is this, it's a skyscraper. It's a huge piece of infrastructure, both for storing a bunch of cryogenic propellants and it has to combine them in a very particular way. And it has to fly and it has to carry the payload. Um, and it all has to, because it has to, it all has to be super light. And that makes it super challenging. If the thing that does the work itself never has to fly, it, it's a very different ball game from an engineering standpoint. I can solve my engineering problems by adding concrete. That's a completely valid solution for my launch system. That's not true for a rocket. You're never going to fill in the gaps with extra concrete and mild steel. It's not there. The, the thing that I'm building looks a lot more like and has the engineering margins of a civil engineering project. It's much more like building a bridge than it is like building this extremely exquisite piece of aerospace technology. What um, and is there a world where even the the types of payloads that that your company could be launching will be dramatically different than what a you know a SpaceX is is launching? And yeah, one thing I will say the is that I'm skeptical that we'll ever get we will ever get to the fairing size that SpaceX has. Like I think of the the super heavy they're working on right now. It's had many names in the past. Super heavy Starship, whatever you want to call it. Um, can't remember what they're calling it right now, but it's got a nine meter fairing. I don't think we're ever going to get there. Um, I do think that we're probably going to have like a maximum, like two meter fairing size. Something. Like what explain, maybe explain that a little bit. What so that's basically how, what is the diameter of the payload you can potentially set? So nine meters, you could just like park a couple of cars back to back in there. No problem. You could run a bus into it. It's cool. You could take the whole thing that way lengthwise. Our system, that will never be the case. Um, uh, also our system, even if we make it really long, we build the thing to like five, six, seven, 10 kilometers long, it's never going to be the case that we're going to launch people out of our system. Why, why is that? The accelerational forces are too high. So a rocket accelerates over the, basically the, the height of the entire atmosphere and then out into space. So it's accelerating over the course of hundreds and hundreds of miles, right? Now, if you cut that in half, the maximum G-forces you would feel for the same amount of acceleration would double. 
right? So if you go from accelerating over 400 miles to 200 miles, instead of feeling like two or three Gs, you might feel seven or eight Gs. Now in our system, the thing is to get to space, it's all about the top speed. It's all about the speed that you get to. So we have to go to the same speed they're going, but we do it on the ground over the course of a few miles, like one or two miles, as opposed to hundreds of miles. So the accelerational forces experienced might be on the order of, for like the eventual launch system we'd like to build, a few hundred. You might be talking about um, 500 Gs. You wow. and I, not comfortable. But your, your cell phone, for instance, can survive about 900 Gs. So okay. we, we think that we get to the point where it's like 500, 600, 400 Gs. Um, most satellites that could survive a vibe table, those vibe tests they put satellites through, they'd be just fine. And there's a really important point here, which is that, um, you know, why do this in the first place? Why be interested in chucking stuff into space? Um, every person you send to the moon or to Mars or to a deep space colony for the long term, like if you want to send people to stay, uh, you might end up having to send a hundred tons of food and fuel and habitat and tools and equipment um, consumables per person to get things started. It's going to be a while before they can live off the land. Like early settlers to the new world were not able to live off the land. They relied on constant shipments from Europe and there was literally free food and air here just lying around. There were people they could trade with. If you want to actually establish a long-term human presence on the moon, on Mars, you're going to be sending stuff for a long time. So for a 100 kilogram human being, you're talking about hundreds of tons of material. That if it, it is absolutely critical, if we want that to be part of a human future, that the price of sending stuff to space be dirt, dirt cheap. I think we're probably going to need rockets for the foreseeable future to launch people. Right. Sure. I, it's difficult for me to imagine a different way of doing it. There, there are some things, but I, I think that's tough. But, you know, if we can use a gigantic air breathing potato gun to launch stuff into space and drop the price by a couple of orders of magnitude as a result, all of a sudden, like the, the actual material that the colony is built out of becomes affordable and you can actually afford to send people to space. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's why I do long shots. Well, and, and, and kind of uh, taking taking that thread a little bit. So, Mike, um, yeah, and you guys are you're, you're literally the quintessential, you know, deep tech founders. We love founders at BedTech. Um, tell tell me a little bit about just your personal journey. So, when I look at your bio, it's like holy smokes! Like you've had a lot of different chapters of life. Yeah, maybe yeah. Give, give a quick walkthrough, and then and just tell me kind of what you learned at each phase that sort of built upon each other. Sure. So let's see. Grip super poor. Um, uh, then I joined the army because I had no way to pay for school. Also 9-11 happened. So it felt like a good thing to do at the time. Uh, I was a combat engineer. I kind of wish I joined the air force in retrospect, but I was a combat engineer and a paratrooper. Went to Afghanistan a couple of times, got out, went to school. I studied economics initially. And, you know, bizarrely enough, while I was getting that degree, I, through a series of weird events and a YouTube video I made where I talked about my interests in space biology and Mars. I ended up getting an internship at NASA Ames Research Center here in California. I drove across the country in two days and slept on a friend's couch for a summer while doing that. And then I never went back to North Carolina. It was basically fixed here in uh, Mountain View. 
Um, I lived in a bunch of co-ops. I actually used to live with the folks who went on to found Planet. I was there when they built their first demo satellite in the garage. Um, super cool just being a fly on the wall watching that happen. Uh, Ravi and Jesse and um, uh, Chris Boschhausen doing that way back in the day. And now it's a billion-dollar company. So, you know, I, I think that the, the transition from North Carolina to California is super, super important. And I got incredibly lucky in that I was looking for a cheap place to live while I was interning at NASA Ames. And I found this house that was packed full of like 11 absolutely extraordinary people. Um, and, and the peninsula is not an easy place to find uh, cheap housing and, and around NASA Ames does not usually go hand in no, hand. So. No, it doesn't. But, you know, I was I was sleeping on a bed in a room with five other beds in it. Right. That's how that worked. I was in the guest room. And then somebody moved out later. I got a full-time offer position at Ames as a technician. I stayed and I was able to move into a room at the house. A lot of things were just straight up luck. Um, met my wife working at NASA Ames, my now wife. Um, and uh, how, long, yeah. how long were you at NASA? How many years? Uh, I, I actually, I, I finished my bachelor's degree and my master's while working at Ames. So like another five years. Oh, wow. Okay. Those lines. When, when did the entrepreneurial bug start to to sort of uh, uh, bite at you? I'm just curious. I'd been I'd been nursing a bunch of different startup ideas while I'd been going to school, and when uh, after my bachelor's degree, I actually went and I worked at Deep Space Industries. I also uh, part timed at uh, a company called Calcion, which is biotech. I kind of bounced between space and biotech a bunch as my my master's degree ended up being in molecular biology um, because of my interest in biology, and I was working at a space biosciences lab at NASA Ames. Um, but uh, I, I, I knew that I wanted to start a company. I worked out at Deep Space. Deep Space didn't work out. That company ended up folding up shortly after. I went back to school, got my master's in molecular biology. And then at the end of that, I'm now in my sort of like, I've been working, I've been going to school. I've done like worked at other people's startups. And I was in my mid thirties and I was like, if I'm going to do the founding thing, I'll pull the trigger, gotta pull the trigger. So I'm incredibly grateful to my wife who stuck it out. She basically supported me through the master's degree and was willing to give me six months of not getting paid, which is critical. <laughs> you have to have some runway like that if you're going to do a start. People, I, I think under, it's an underappreciated uh, initial investor, right? Our, our spouses. It was oh. uh, when we started FedTech, same, same way. Uh, my, my wife was the first, uh, you know, it, uh, invested in her belief uh, that there could be a future. Yeah, no, totally true. I, 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 I owe so much to her um, in doing all of this. And um, it was uh, brutal. It was totally brutal. So I um, had the incredible timing to basically try and incorporate long shot just as we were starting to hear about this weird flu thing happening in China, um, which then evolved very rapidly into the COVID-19 crisis. And I was trying to raise sort of pre-seed, I'd say, money, kind of friends and family money at a time when nobody was investing like literally plates were just shut oh yeah the world was ending yeah yeah the world was ending um so it was a really hard time uh we did uh my original co-founder james decorsha and i did manage to find somebody who basically put in 30 grand and then we lived off that 30 grand we did work and lived off that 30 grand for a year just about one of those like that i always get fascinated by that that first kind of jump um yeah the founders make into the water because even you, we see a lot of founders, I mean, it, it's hard to even know how to structure your time, right? Like, what is the focus, right? Is it, is it, is it raising money? Is it product? I mean, what, how yeah. did you, how did at you the sort very, of spend your time? At the, at the very beginning, 
the company was a pitch deck, right? I was working on a pitch deck. It was, I remember the early versions of it. It was terrible by my, my current standards. Like the company is an idea and the company is a pitch deck. And the two early products we came up with, like products, when you're a pre, pre-seed, when you're a concept levels company, are like, we had a white paper that went over the technicals that said like, this is the back of the napkin, like physics of how this thing is we were proposing would work and why we think it can work. And then here's the pitch deck that couches that into the terms of like how you would actually approach a venture capital. Crap capitals. Yeah. Those were like the things that we basically worked on building up to over the course of many months. Because they were terrible initially. Like and and, and I, I feel like I took a lot long to get them where they needed to be because I couldn't get meetings with people. Right. Yeah, true. Yeah. If I, I think that the quality of feedback that you get from in-person rejection is actually better than what you get off a Zoom call. Yeah, yeah. Well, describe. May I describe that a little bit? I mean, um, I, I must have pitched dozens of people, and you just have like a polite end and thank you, and then you know you're ghosted, and that's it. And um, I, I didn't have a deep network. I wasn't able to go to parties and talk to people who I knew about this stuff. I was kind of counting on being able to go talk to all the people that I knew who do startup stuff, but like, you know, wasn't happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's amazing. Yeah. The, I, I, I definitely see that too. Like the, the feedback you get in person, right. When they really want to show you the door, you, you feel that more and you, you kind of know, you know, where you need to pivot your, yeah. it, your it, approach. It, it's a weird, I, I do think in some ways in COVID and post COVID, it's easier to get meetings in some ways because the assumption is they're always going to be online. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, but they, they, they mean less at the same time. Um, so if you're looking to pitch investors, you can get your hands on them. Um, but you know, it's, it's tough. Um, and, and initially for the first like six months of the whole thing, we basically pitched the company as a launch company going for space launch initially, and we got absolutely no love on that. And then we pivoted towards hypersonics. Um, and that was extremely fortuitous. We ended up a pitching, we also had avoided going down the SBIR route, uh, simply because like they're time consuming, they're, they're their own thing. Like you can develop a whole skill set of being good at SBIR. Oh yeah. Um, and there are companies that do nothing but that. And we did, we did not respect those companies and not want to become one of them. So we had avoided that for the first six months. Once we switched over to hypersonics, like, okay, time to go for it. Um, and we got very lucky by making some good connections at AFRL and getting an MOU and managing to secure a direct to phase two SBIR. And it happened just- well, Maybe to explain a little bit just about how, because I think that that's an awesome program that has not um, been in existence too, too long. And it's really, you guys are an example, I think of, you know, when government people want to think through smarter ways to leverage, you know, the 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 two to $3 billion a year that's in SBI, the SBIR program. It's like, you guys are kind of a, an example of like how that can work well. I mean, so tell, maybe tell a little bit about kind of how the, uh, that worked for you and what you're able to leverage that funding for. So, um, we, well, I, I will say, I don't think that we would have gotten it if we hadn't run into Sam Rain, who runs a company called SBR Advisors. He is one of this whole ecosystem of basically former SBIR reviewers who have now, you know, some, uh, metastasized out to the private sector and sell their services for hire. They're um, a Ronin out there for companies that want to write SBIRs. Sure. Um, I think we might've been his first customer at SBIR Advisors. Um, and he was great. He helped us actually write a grant that could get submitted 
and helped submit it. And I think that if we had tried it ourselves, we probably would have just messed the paperwork up. Like it can be an obtuse and intimidating process if you've never done it. So I will yeah, say yeah. it's worth getting some help. Like I, I was really on the, on the fence because like, like we had no money. So, you know, offering up some to get that help felt incredibly painful. We did. It ended up being the right decision. There's no element of luck in there, but I would not go back and change anything. We still use them. They're great. Um, once well, maybe got, just curious, like just, just maybe describe just how, so what did that look like to, to kind of for you guys to write a, even write the proposal? What was that process like to, I meet a lot of technical founders who, you know, I try and encourage to pursue FDIR, yeah. but they, you know, just don't even know where to get started and yeah. feel like they're submitting into a, you know, an empty exactly. black box that they're never getting any feedback from. And that, that yeah. often is a, that's fine. I, I just wanted to say that the most important thing about writing grants is that like, you know, you as a technical founder, you as a founder of a company, you are possessed by this idea. You've got this idea. It's a brain worm. You, your family hates that you keep talking about it. Like it's in you. You have to take your baby and, and your baby's the shape of a, of a cube and you have to hammer it into a round hole. The round hole is going to be whatever DOD is interested in right now, right? And there's some way, I guarantee you, if you're prepared to be creative about it, there is some way that the thing that you're working on is in fact incredibly important to somebody's mission inside of DOD. But you have to be able to go into like, you know, long-term strategy documents issued by like the Air Force or the Navy or whomever and say like, okay, they're super, super interested in like long-term soldier tele-mental health. That's where we are, right? And you have to find the language that they use to describe those priorities. And then you have to make your baby fit that language and then give it back to them. You must be able to read and understand what they want before you can write anything. Because if you just try and write them the thing that you're interested in, even if it would actually address that need, they won't be able to hear it. They won't, they won't look at the paper and they won't read that. Yeah. Um, most of the people who are reviewing these things probably don't even have a technical background in the fields that they're reviewing. They're going to be some second lieutenant with like a, a bachelor's in like history or something along those lines. You have to be able to write to a, to a lay audience and you have to be able to couch it in terms, the, the exact terms and the exact language that DOD is asking. That is critical. And if you can do that, like your odds are good. Your odds are good. You can look at the basic odds for like, how many people are awarded grants out of how many apply? A lot of those people aren't following the advice I just gave you. If you do, you know, maybe not quite 50-50, but close for a lot of things. Um, yeah, I heard, I heard interesting advice recently that even, let's say you're submitting to a certain um, program, you know, if you, and again, like you're, you're getting at, right? You can, you can always find kind of where these SBIRs are lining up within the DOD. They have websites, they have public, you know, reports, they have yes. strategic plans. Um, and then, you know, even somebody told me recently, like, hey, why, why not um, in those opening paragraphs, put in a, a quote from whoever the commander of that particular, yes. you know, group is and, and, and kind of build the story, right, in a way Absolutely. that resonates with the, uh, the people are reading it. They want to do their job well. They want to support right. the mission that they're... The, the, the opening line of our, of our awarded phase two SBIR um, was, um, it, I can't remember the exact word, but it was something like the price of labor for an aerospace engineer in China is X, Y, Z, right? Like if we want to be competitive in hypersonics, 
we have to develop better, cheaper, faster ways of developing hypersonics or we're going to get left behind. Like that was the opening line also. Don't bury the lead. <laughs> Explain at the very beginning. These people have read 30 of these this day, right? You know, you have to explain in the simplest, clearest, eighth grade reading level way why you and what you're working on is critical to national defense and critical to like that particular branch and this particular call, why it's critical. Do that up front. Yeah, it's great advice. The lead and not being able to read, not, not wanting to read and give them what they want. Give the, give, the, give the audience what it wants and don't bury the lead and you'll do great. You'll do great. Yeah, and I see, I see a lot of founders also that they kind of delay that process, right? Of like, I, I would say, like, just literally lock yourself in a room for a long yeah. weekend, write the proposal, take a shot on goal. Ugh. Don't, don't wait yeah. until it sounds perfect. I have, you know? I have advice there too. It's really hard to hire aerospace engineers. It's super easy to hire a kid who just graduated with a degree in history. And you know what people with a degree in history can do or a person with a degree in, socio, in sociology or anthropology can do? They can write. I was a history and major, right? Yeah. Yeah, they can write. It's all we can you know, do, I, yeah. So I, I, there was a kid from two houses down the street who I knew had just graduated from um, uh, Santa Clara University uh, nearby, and he had a degree in history. And I had talked with him a couple of times, seemed like a smart dude. Best hire I ever made. What did you have him do specifically? Well, I started off and I was like, hey, Brendan, I have no money, but if you want to help me write grants and we get one, you've got a salary, baby. And <laughs> that was the initial thing. Brendan worked for three months, three or four months with no pay. I was working for no pay at the time as well, but like it sucked. Yeah, yeah. No. And, um, you know, I basically, over the course of like the past year and a half, two years, like Brendan has been the spackle that has filled in every hole in the company. He's basically our, our, our he runs our operations. But I originally got him up to the point um, of like, I can delegate a lot of the writing to him, right? I had to write the first, and he watched me write the first one. And he had all that material, and he began to understand how I was positioning. And like, um, I would just say that it would be, it, it's a great investment. It's a great investment to yeah, pick yeah. up somebody with a background in, um, who's just a good writer, and they can learn how to pitch. And uh, right now, like Brendan makes the first draft of all of our pitch decks. Brendan, he cranks out the first. He works with SDR advisors directly. Like cool. uh, he also pays all of our taxes, does all our compliance, runs payroll. Like get yourself a dude in the arts and make your life a lot easier running the company. Love so, it. Okay. Um, so I, I totally recommend that as well. Don't try and do it yourself. Yeah, that's great, Mike. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's hard to not, you know, I imagine when, when, you, when you sell people on the vision, right? It's hard to not get people wanting to, to be a part of it. So yeah, um, yeah, I've had to turn some folks away, which was a startling experience the first time. I did. <laughs> yeah. Like it was, I was like, oh, Jesus, I can't just take everybody. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I want, I want to, I always ask founders. So to me, starting a, a company, starting a deep tech company, it, it, it's it's this journey and there, there's kind of the mile markers on the journey that if you look back are often really significant. And I just it, it give maybe uh, the, the, the listeners here a little sense of, two or three of those mile marker moments where, you know, that was either good or, hey, gosh, hey, yeah, you know, so good, bad, ugly, whatever it might be, but those moments that you sort of realize, you know, and learn something about this process of starting a company. Building my first prototype was a fight with my original co-founder because he thought that the order of operations should be 
get an SBIR, then build a prototype when you have money. The trick was, I think he was very wrong. And if I could go back in time, I would do it over again. The second I built my first prototype, I realized just how important it was to build something, anything. And we built that prototype and had it operational, basically just me and Brendan working on it. Um, super critical. Building the first prototype, incredibly important. And I think it was decisive in getting us our money, our, 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 our Air Force, SBIR. Um, James joining the company was super critical. My original co-founder, I would not have started if he had not come along. I needed a co-founder. James quitting. He actually, shortly after we got the phase two SBIR, he was like, I gotta, I gotta go away. He had a one-year-old and he got a job off and it was like, it was the right decision for him. That was heartbreaking for me in a way and a very demoralizing. On one hand, we've gotten a bunch of money. And on the other hand, I was all of a sudden like twisting in the wind. I had no technical co-founder. That's hard, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, we did manage to recover from that, but it was, it was tough. It was a close thing. Um, from there, um, getting our first investment from Space Fund, actually, Megan Crawford at Space Fund was the first. Uh, the second I nailed down the grant, I basically started making phone calls to all the VCs who had rejected me, but had been warm. Like they had been, you know, uh, they had liked it, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the, for whatever excuse they made up, they didn't want to, they didn't like it. Well, would, would you say to sort of reopen the door? Just curious, like when you, when you went back to them? I, I said, you told me that I should come back to you when I get some government money. And guess what? It's time. Time to invest. Put up or shut up. Um, a lot of investors told us, like, you're working on a, what's clearly going to be a very capital-intensive aerospace project. Why don't you go get some government money and come back? And that, that was very frustrating in the period before we had decided that we were going to do SBIR at all. We didn't want to do that. So Megan agreeing to lead the round. Uh, was super important. Um, originally, we were just trying to match the three quarters of a million bucks we'd gotten from the Air Force. However, later, uh, Sam Altman swooped in. So like three or four months after the round was open, and it's like, it's technically, if you look at the paperwork, open for a defined period of time, and sure. then it closes. Uh, like a couple of weeks before the actual technical closing of the round, we got a call from Sam Altman through an advisor. He's the guy who's doing chat GTP. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I saying, it's, it's, that's a pretty big name to just uh, it is. swoop in. It is. And he was like, yeah, how about we double the size of that round? Um, I was like, wow. Okay. I said, yes, I'm back and argue. Um, I'll take it. Uh, so he gave us another uh, three quarters of a million bucks. So we got 1.5 from BC and uh, three quarters of a million from Air Force. We later won some phase ones and a couple other little tiny pots, basically bringing that up to a million bucks. Um, wow, cool. So yeah, that's what us built. Uh, we built a Mach 5 prototype out here um, of a completely novel way of pushing stuff to hypersonic speeds. It's been thought about before, but it's never been built before. Just these guys right here. <laughs> um, but I, I think that getting money from Space Fund, getting money from Sam, closing that round, um, my new co-founder, who's been a friend of mine for like, geez, pushing 15 years now, Nato Sachek. Him quitting Astra to come do this, that was a huge moment as well. Uh, as much as it hurt to have James go, it felt good to have NATO come on. Um, so that was a super important moment. Um, yeah, uh, I think those are the big milestones. Our first like actual test fire 
I think she felt a little anticlimactic. There was so much tension around it. Like doing okay. our first test fire was really important and really cool too. And like right now, I'm hoping that in the next two or three weeks, we hit another one, which is going to be Mach 5. So we're still like inching our way up. Our last shot was at Mach 2.2, and we had to do some adjustments to our electrical systems before we hit Mach 5, which is the, the technical definition of hypersonic. Um, okay. Yeah. I want to be a hypersonics guy. So we got to be hypersonic. Um, and I think that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So cool. Fingers crossed. Best, best of luck. Yeah. And I, I want to let you get back to it. Whoever was, was doing the cutting, we should let them get back to you, uh, yeah. finishing yeah. that piece. Yeah. Um, it's not going to cut itself. Yeah. So I always ask my, uh, Mike, just if you were going to offer kind of, um, uh, you know, tweet size piece of advice. Yeah. For somebody that's uh, a first time founder doing something technical and any, any, uh, piece of advice, you know, if you could sort of boil it down to one, one thing. If you, um, you can apply for SBIRs while you have a real job. It's not a full-time job. Apply for SBIRs while you're getting paid by somebody else. You get the SBIR, quit, and you got a company on your hands. If you do it in that order of operations, you'll save yourself a whole lot of ball-punching pain, right? <laughs> yeah. You'll yeah, get oh, good, yeah. and you will develop the skill set of writing SBIRs before you actually have to go out there and try living on them for a little. Good advice. Um, that, that is, you know, get somebody else to pay you. And while you are learning to write SBIRs, that's, and it, with the second you get one, you know, you're off to the races. I love it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, this is great. Well, yeah, I think we'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it here, but, um, yeah, I wish you guys the absolute best of luck. Thanks for being a, a part of, uh, you know, our discussion today. And, um, yeah, we're FedTech's hundred percent behind you guys. Anything well, I do want to say other important milestone going to FedTech, of course. Oh, thank you. Okay. Love what that. Love we did that. actually meet uh, one of a really important advisor for Fed. I will say that's what yeah, I got yeah. you guys. We met a really important, uh, former Raytheon executive. Yeah. Um, Mark Bingham. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's a best. Wonderful. And he actually, we had him out here last week. I paid for him to fly up and he cool. spent okay. a, a day with us. And I want to say that he's a super, super important advisor. And that, that was, I think the primary thing that we walked away from FedTech with, and that's not nothing. Good. Um, good. I'll get yeah. to hear that. Yeah. Mark's, Mark's the best. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ben, thank you so much for this. This is fun. What, let's do yeah. it again in like a year or something like that. Oh, oh yeah. Anytime. Then. 